If you have your Bible tonight, I hope you do. If you'll turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10, really just a brief paragraph, but it's really packed with a lot of things for us to consider tonight. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. If I had a title tonight, my message would be The One Essential. I'll explain that here after we read it. Luke 10, beginning in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I would characterize tonight's lesson as, or a message as a discipleship lesson. I, I think it could, the argument could be made that the Gospels, one of their main purposes are uh, to be a discipleship manual for us. Um, they are filled with stories about Jesus with his disciples and how he taught them who he was and what he was like. If you're not aware of it, let me make it clear to you tonight as we begin, because it's the, really the idea behind everything we'll be saying, and that is that the priority, the number one priority of a disciple, someone who has committed their life to following Jesus, is to sit at his feet. In the first century, if you were a disciple of a rabbi, your main goal would be to sit at his feet. Yosef ben Yoezer, if I say it correctly, um, second century quote, He said this, let your house be a meeting place for the rabbis and cover yourself in the dust of their feet and drink in their words thirstily. I've said that quote before, but it's well worth repeating. Sitting at the feet of a rabbi meant that you traveled around with them from place to place. And at times you would walk behind them as respectful as you would be. And you would be covered in their dust. And they couldn't think of any greater privilege than sitting at someone's feet. In fact, the little phrase that I read in the text, uh, that very phrase, sitting at someone's feet, is a first century Jewish idiom. And by that I meant it was something that was an indicator of your biblical education or your discipleship. When you sat at someone's feet, it ended up saying to everyone that that was your credentials. That's who you learned from. That's how you were taught Torah and and the Bible of that time. Um, In this very gospel, in chapter 8 and verse 35, the maniac or the demonized man from Gadara is healed by Jesus. The demons are cast out. And unlike it before, when he was without clothes, running around in the cemetery, so to speak, hurting himself, he was completely changed. And one of the emphasized changes that's described in Luke 8.35 is that he sat at the feet of Jesus. And that he's not just sitting there um, for no reason. He has declared that he wants to hear Jesus' teaching and be his disciple. In fact, when Jesus leaves to go on the boat, the guy begs him to be with him. And be with him means, hey, not just to hang around you for a while. I want to go and be one of your disciples like these guys. And that was an instantaneous change. It ought to tell us this, that when you get saved, 
You don't just be a Christian, you become immediately a disciple. And your greatest desire should be to be with Jesus, and more importantly than that, even so, to be like him. Paul described himself in his pre-conversion life in Acts 22, in verse 3, he says, I was educated by sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the two most prominent rabbis in the maybe the last 20, 30 years before Jesus. And that's where Paul was educated. He was the disciple of one of the most profound rabbis of the day before Jesus. And so the number one responsibility of any disciple was to be like his Jesus, be like his rabbi, in this case Jesus. But there are two parts to that, and it's important because it's going to clarify the context of our passage tonight. To be like your rabbi, there were two things. Now, we would say in America, we always would emphasize one, and that is to know what your rabbi knows. It was absolutely crucial that you know his interpretation of Torah and how he viewed his Bible and how he interpreted things. And your job was to know everything he knew. And that's the big emphasis in America. Bible studies, books, readings, take courses. And we almost at times equate information with maturity, which is a big mistake. But it is part of it. It's half of it. To be a disciple of a rabbi was to know what he knows and to do everything he did. And in Hebrew mindset, those things were not dichotomy. There was no separation. Knowing and doing went together. That's why James says, don't be just a hearer of the word, but a doer also. And in the first century, that's what every, every disciple wanted to be. He wanted to be a disciple who knew what his master knew and do what his master did. And can I say, as a way of application, as we get the ball rolling tonight, uh, it should be the greatest aim and aspiration of every Christian in the world. And our text allows me to say tonight, male or female. Um, If you're a follower of Jesus, your greatest goal in life should be to be like him. Now, when you're a kid, and if you're like me, multiple times, especially as you got a little older, maybe approaching being a teenager, you get this question asked by your own family or other adults, what do you want to be when you grow up? And that took a lot of forms, and I'm sure it's a lot of different answers. Um, I want to be, you know, my day, back in the day, fireman. I want to be a policeman. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a teacher. I want to be, and they had all these things out there. And today, it might be even different quite a bit. I want to be, when I grew up, successful. I want to be rich. And if you're really philosophical, I want to be happy, whatever that is. I want to be popular. I want to be accepted. And I want to be, and you fill in the blank. But I would say this, as Christians and as parents who teach our Christian children, I would hope that the answer that would come out of their mouth first and foremost, right away, would be this. I want to be a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be great that without your prompting, without initiating any little push, that when your kids were asked that as a teenager and beyond in their life, that the first thing out of their mouth would be, you know what I want to be? I want to be a committed follower of Jesus. Now, I may be something else, but tell me, let me tell you this. First and foremost, that's what I want to be. That should be the goal of every parent, shouldn't it? That should be the goal of every youth pastor and every youth leader who ministers to our teens. That they want to say this. Our teenagers, we want them to be able to say, here's what I want more than anything else. Here is the climax of my life. I want to be like Jesus. And the question then is, 
How can that happen? Because you might say, that, is, that, is that like a little idealistic? Is that a little bit pie in the sky? Is that really possible? I mean, I don't know too many teenagers, I hate to say, that would have that be the first answer out of their mouth. It can be. It can be and it should be. And let me tell you this, but it's going to start with us, isn't it? It's going to start with the adults. How does it happen? Well, you and I and our young people are going to have to learn from Jesus this important truth that's related in this text in order for that to begin to happen. We have to learn how to decide clearly between what is essential and non-essential in our lives. I looked up in the dictionary, the definition of essential is this, something that is necessary, indispensable, or unavoidable. You see that? That's what our kids need to know. That's what we need to live out in our lives. We have to teach them by how we live our lives that following Jesus is necessary. Right? Not optional. It's necessary. It's indispensable. We can't do without it. We can do with a lot of other things, but not that one. It's unavoidable that no matter everything in our life comes back to that one question, are you really following Jesus? That's what we need to teach our kids. And say, recently, since the COVID-19 pandemic, um, our state and federal governments have made decisions and choices that we're all living in, and their their decisions and choices about what can and cannot stay open. And they've been using the language of, this is essential, and this is non-essential. And there's categories. There's essential and non-essential businesses right now. There are essential and non-essential servers or services or workers. In fact, some people have to get papers when they're, for a while. At least they're driving down the road to go to their job because if they got pulled over by the police, they'd have to prove that where they're going and what they're doing is essential. Otherwise, they might get fined or in trouble. Now, a lot of things our government has deemed in the last number of weeks to be essential are pretty obvious, and there's a consensus on, I think all of us would agree, that grocery stores are essential. <laughs> Take out food places, I'll have to give that one high merits. I mean, medical everything would be essential. Bank services, even if you had to drive up to the window. Pharmacies, um, post office, uh, law enforcement, auto repair, gas station. I mean, everybody's pretty much in agreement that those are essentials. But there are some and I think you'll agree that I don't find to be as equally essential at all. Liquor stores, I'm not sure how that has been considered essential. That would be definitely on the non-essential side of things for me. Cannabis dispensaries, uh, nicely said as marijuana shops, those have been declared in a lot of places essential. Church is not, by the way, but marijuana is. That's our culture. Gun stores, buying a weapon has become essential in America. Hardware stores, mm, yeah, I understand. Office supply stores, okay, if business is still going on. But coming to the conclusion I have by reading the articles that what is essential and non-essential often changes. In fact, from state to state in America, it changes. Did you know that from the very first day until now that in Delaware, florists... Buying flowers has been essential the entire time in Delaware. Never closed. Did you know from the very first day until now, as far as I read, that golf courses have been open the entire time in Arizona? In Arizona. 
You have been able to get all the time the last six weeks. If you wanted Belgian fries in Europe, you can get them because the fry stores, the French fries, they are there and open. Pastries, wine, and cheese stores in France have not closed one day during the pandemic crisis. In light of some of this news, my sister, Lorene, sent me a kind of a joke. And it said on my text that she's learned two things that are essential during the pandemic. Hair salons and nail salons. And all the ladies say amen, right? But the principle, I believe, holds true when it comes to discipleship. Can I tell you? A follower of Jesus has to be able to, clear, to choose between what is essential and non-essential. Mary and Martha, particularly Martha, needed to learn that lesson. The crux of our text tonight really amounts to one little phrase at the end of verse 41 and 42. And it says this, Martha says, Jesus, you are troubled about, here it is, many things, but one thing is necessary. You see that? In your mind tonight, if you're taking notes, put beside the word many things, non-essential. And put one thing that is necessary in your mind, put the word essential there. Because Jesus says, if you want to follow me and you want to be my disciple, which, by the way, Mary is doing in the text because she is found sitting at the feet of Jesus. Unusual because men and women always had their own spaces. And women weren't to get further rabbinical teaching. So for Mary to have chosen to sit at Jesus' feet, declaring to everybody that she wants to be his disciple would have been quite unusual. But she's declaring this, that you know what's essential? I can't think Mary would say of anything more important and crucial than following Jesus and hearing his word. Now I'm going to tell you, that sounds all well and good, and nobody's probably arguing with me yet. But let me tell you this, it's not as easy as you think. Let me tell you why. The big overall context of Luke 10, 38-42 is called by commentators the travel narrative. And by travel narrative, I mean from chapter 9 in Luke to chapter 19 in Luke, all the stories and all the events taking place in those 10 chapters happen as Jesus and his disciples are traveling to Jerusalem for the very last time in his life so that he can go to the cross and die for our sins and be raised again on the third day. And therefore, commentators have said, and I agree, that all the stories in this section of Luke's gospel are meant to be understood as cruciform stories. Stories that are told and to be understood in the shadow of the cross. In other words, every event should be understood because this is what Jesus' main thought was. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. In fact, our text begins with seemingly insignificant words, but very crucial 38 says, now as they went on their way. Well, what way? Look at all the texts in chapter 9, 10, and on following all the way to 19. These little introductory phrases are just another step, another little portion of the trip to get to Jerusalem, which means this, that our choices as disciples of Jesus about what is essential and non-essential are cruciform choices. They will be, and excuse me, They are cross-cultural choices. They are going to go against the grain of what everybody else is doing. 
All the people who don't have crosses in their life, they're not on the Jesus journey. They're not trying to be like him. and They're not trying to follow him in his cruciform ways. They are going to come to very different conclusions about what is essential and non-essential because Jesus isn't the center and the cross isn't in their lives. And you and I, as we make these kind of choices in big and small ways on a daily basis, we are not going to ha- most of the time agree with popular culture. And I want to give you tonight, by way of example, two of them and illustrate what that means and how that works its way out in our daily lives. So the first example is our text, and I'm going to explain it to you and unpack that first century Israel example of how that looked. And then I want to make some arguments about how it looked look in 21st century America. So where do you get your discipleship priorities? That's the question. Do you get them from Christ or do you get them from culture? So there is cultural discipleship. And by the way, I mean by that, parents, that someone is discipling your children. You know that. There is no, there's not a discipleship and non-discipleship. Your, your kids... And you, by the way, you are being discipled by someone. It's either the culture in which you live or the Christ by which you say you follow. And we have to make choices. And one of the important choices we make daily that will determine that, or the reality of that, will be whether we follow Christ or culture, whether we are clearly thinking in his terms what is essential and non-essential. So our text says, that they, they came to a village. Now, it doesn't give the name, but it's Bethany, we learn from the other Gospels. It's two miles from Jerusalem. And then we get some more information. And they come to a house of a woman who's named Mary. Martha, I'm sorry. It's her house. I don't know if that means her husband has died, and she's a widow, and she has the house because it was hers. And her sister Mary and brother Lazarus came to live. I don't know the circumstances, but I do know that she's in charge. It's her house. And she's, in, she's uh, running the show. It then says, and please don't run over it because it's crucial to understanding the text. It says, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. The word welcome is the, the Bible word for hospitality. Um, it's used in a number of times. And I'm going to tell you about those other, a few examples of that in a moment. But can I tell you about uh, Middle Eastern culture, hospitality and welcoming people as a guest into your house was paramount. It was essential for sure. And I want to say this, super essential. I mean, if you weren't a good host and you didn't welcome people and you didn't feed them and you didn't take care of them, you were considered the worst of the worst. I mean, it was a horrible thing socially not to be hospitable. The word is used in Luke 9, 53. Let me show you how powerful it is. Jesus and his disciples on the way to the cross stop in a village in Samaria. And the Samaritans, it said, because Jesus had his face set toward Jerusalem, they would not, and here's the word, 953, they wouldn't receive him. It's the same word. They wouldn't welcome him into their village. They weren't going to keep him overnight. They weren't going to show any hospitality with him. And let me tell you this, it made James and John so mad. Here's their response. Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on him? I mean, over hospitality? I mean, yes. They wanted to, but Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you are. That's not who I am. You haven't learned really about what it means to be my disciple yet. But that's how important hospitality was. Another one, same gospel, Luke 19, 6. Uh, Jesus calls Zacchaeus down from the sycamore tree. And he says, I got to stay at your house today. And it says of Zacchaeus, 
that he hurried down and gladly received Jesus into his house. I mean, he's going to say, are you kidding me? I get to show hospitality to this famous rabbi in my house, and he said he did it joyfully. I mean, he was glad to have, I mean, he made it the best he possibly could. And the guy gets saved because he invited Jesus or had Jesus over and showed him hospitality. Jesus gives him the gospel. Same writer, different book, Acts 17, 7. Paul was in someone's house, and they had, his name was Jason, and they had harbored him. And they say this, that these guys who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them into his house. He's been showing them hospitality. And you know what? When you had somebody in your house, and you received them, and you called them your guests, you were friends. You were associates. They said that you were in agreement with what they were about. So Jason was almost as criminal as Paul and his disciples. Why? Because he had him into his house. That's how important hospitality is. And so what I'm not saying in this text, this is a clear choice between something that's important and not important. No, because Martha is doing something crucial. She's doing what anyone else would have done in her culture. She is doing what everyone would expect her to do, essentially or particularly because it's Jesus. I mean, they are close friends. This is not the first time he stayed there. In her book entitled Having a Merry Heart in a Martha World, Joanna Weaver, uh, Weaver describes Martha well when she says this. What a woman. She opens her home to a band of 13 hungry men, possibly more. What a hostess. She doesn't whip up some impromptu casserole of Kraft macaroni and cheese and ballpark franks as I've been known to do. Not her. She is the original Martha Stewart, the New Testament's Proverb 31 woman, and Israel's answer to Betty Crocker. Or the least, that's the way I imagine her. She's the queen of the kitchen and the rest of the house. I mean, and I'm sure (laughs) that's how Martha saw herself. She's in charge. This is her house. And if Jesus is going to be here, you know he's going to be treated right. Everyone's going to make it so it's great for him and his disciples. We don't know when we're going to see him again. She was doing what was culturally accepted. She was adapting to the cultural priorities of what really mattered. But there's another version, and it's a contrast between Martha and her sister Mary in the very next verse. Because 39 reads, and she said she had a sister called Mary, who's not in the kitchen, which every woman would have been. Instead, she's at the feet of Jesus, And here's the choice that she's made. She's listening to his teaching. As you read this story, you've got to ask the question, if you're a serious exegete, why in the world is it preceded by the Good Samaritan story? I mean, why Good Samaritan and then this story? Why are those back-to-back? Are they related at all, or is it just completely, you know, hodgepodge without any purpose? Let me remind you again. If, if gospels, at least in part, are discipleship manuals, why would these two events be next to each other? Because what is the goal of a disciple, as we repeat ourselves a little tonight? What is the goal? To know what the master knows and do what the master does. The two words in the preceding story in Luke 10, the Good Samaritan, is emphasized in verse 28 and in verse 37. It's like a little framework of the Good Samaritan story. And it's the word do. Verse 28 says, you have answered correctly. Circle it. Do this and you will live. 
at the very end of the story, when he's all said and done, and he's told him the, quote-unquote, the moral of the story, he says this, you go and do likewise. This is a story that Jesus tells about what it means to be compassionate and loving toward people, even people who are to be known as your sworn enemies. And unless you do compassion, you are not really compassionate. And it's a story about doing what Jesus does. Jesus is living a life compassionate to sinners and outcasts and marginalized people that no one would have anything to do with. And he says, see, that good Samaritan, that's like me. You want to be like me? Go do that. But let me tell you, remember we said? It's two parts to being a disciple of the rabbi. Doing what he does and knowing what he knows. And the story of Mary and Martha is just that. It's a woman who desires to be his disciple, sitting at his feet. You know what? She wants to hear his teaching because she says this, if I'm going to ever do what he does, I'm going to have to know what he knows. And there can't be anything more important than that. It has to be first. In their book, First Things First, Stephen Covey and Roger and Rebecca Merrill asked this penetrating question, penetrating question what is the one activity that you know if you did superbly well at and consistently would have significant positive results in your personal life they ask that question to the people that they're writing to and then they repeat the question in order to apply it to their personal or professional lives So personally and professionally, what is the one thing? And then they followed up with this. If you know these things would make such a significant difference, ready? Why are you not doing them? Why? If you know this should be first in your life, but you've declared it to be second or further down the list, and you know if you'd made this first, it would change everything, the question then becomes, well, why aren't you doing it? So let me take those questions and reorientate them toward your discipleship with Jesus. What is the one activity that you know that if you did superbly well and consistently at it would have significant positive results in your walk with God? Then if you know this would make such a significant difference, why haven't you done it this past week? Why haven't you done it this past month? Why aren't you doing it at all? See, I believe there is one significant activity, and and I believe that Jesus believed it too because he says it as much. Sitting at his feet, listening to his word, his teaching, is the one necessary thing in life that has to come before all other things. You may have heard this story before, but in a business management class, the teacher came out and all the students were seated, and he had this one gallon glass jar and he took out a number of fist-sized large rocks and began one at a time to put them into the glass jar until they pretty much went up as many as he could into the top of this jar and so looking at them and then looking at his students he asked them the question now is this full and they all chimed in and said yes yes of course it's full he goes really so from behind where he was standing, he took a bucket of gravel, little pieces of smaller rocks, and began to pour them into the gallon jar with the bigger rocks. And it began to have those little gravel would go in between the spaces where the big rocks were. 
and it filled it even more. And he says, well, is it full now? No one said anything because they weren't going to make that mistake twice. He said, very wise, it is not. So from beneath, he pulled out a big bag of sand and began to pour the sand between the gravel and the rocks and fill it up even more. Repeating the question to the students, he says, is it full? Not a word, not from anybody, because he wasn't done. So he pulled up a big pitcher of water and poured all the water even more into the gallon container until it was coming up almost overflowing at the very top. He says, is it full now? And everyone said, yes, and, and they were right. And so he looks to everybody and he says to them, and what is the point of this illustration? And one student raises his hand and says this, the point is, no matter how full your schedule is, you can always fit more things into it. And the teacher looked at him straight in his eyes and said, nope, that's not the point. Well, he says, what is the point then? The teacher says this, the point is this, if you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in at all. And, that, and that's what Jesus is saying, isn't he? I mean, if you don't start with, as my disciple, sitting at my feet, it, sitting at Jesus' feet and learning his word are the big rocks of discipleship. They are the big rocks. And if you don't start there and you don't make that your priority, see, you're never going to get all the other stuff in the jar. And you may know this and you may do that, but if you're not doing what you know you should do first, what is most important, here's what's going to happen to you because it happened to Martha. You're going to get distracted. That's the word in the text. Chapter 10 and verse 40 reads, but Martha was distracted with much serving. Much serving. The word distracted is only used one time in all of the New Testament, and it means to be pulled away. I like to look at it as taffy. I mean, being pulled this way and that way. You ever get the taffy, and you can pull it and stretch it all over the place, and it goes all... And that's what she was. She was like taffy. She wanted to be here, but she needed to do this, and she was running over here, and she was going crazy to get everything done. And we would say today in our 21st century vernacular that Martha was majoring on the minors, according to Jesus. She was really having a problem because she was making secondary things primary things. And it was distracting her. But this is not a contrast between who's better, worshipers or workers. This is not saying, well, you know, worshipers are far better than workers. That's not what this story is about. It's not a contrast between which is better, hospitality and hearing. One is good and one is bad. It's not it. This is a discipleship lesson on how to clarify the priority between two competing things which are both important. It wasn't a bad thing that Martha was so concerned about hospitality. God is hospitable. He is. But the problem is that she was living out her discipleship, getting her cues from culture, more than Christ. And it was a distraction. It was pulling her away from what mattered most. And she was reversing things. She was majoring on the minors. She was making secondary things, primary things. And when she didn't get her way, can I tell you, and maybe this has been you at times, she gets mad. I mean, so mad. 
Lord, verse 40, don't you care? Now she's even questioned the person she's making the whole meal for. She's now indicting him. Is that, that, is that ever happened to you? I mean, I'm doing all this for Jesus, but now he's making me mad. And then he says, and by the way, she, have you ever done this as a parent? You don't even miss, mention your, it's not that it says, look what Martha's doing. He does, she doesn't even mention her name. My sister. My sister, right? That's what she calls her. She's really ticked. I mean, Joanna Weaver says this, the pot on the stove was not the only thing boiling that day. Martha was fuming. I can just picture her kneading the dough and imagining it was Mary. I'm glad someone is having fun, she grunts to herself as she works on the dough vigorously. She thinks she's a guest. We could have gotten this done in half the time if she was in here with me. Another fist goes into the dough. Why is he letting her sit there like that? How am I going to feed this army of men? You can see the sweat forming under her chin and on her forehead, and she wipes it like this, and she's mad. I think she's right. And the reason she's mad is because she's used to putting the wrong things first. It's called distraction. And now the distraction is not only hurting her on the outside, it's hurting her on the inside. So let me ask you, point blank, how much of your life has been wasted on making secondary things primary things? How long will you continue to go on majoring on the minors? How much of your life has been invested on what is non-essential instead of what is essential? How often... Have you found yourself doing those things? Can I tell you this? One of the results of this horrific choice is that, according to researchers, children turn 18 and they are vacating church. They're no longer coming when they graduate. When the choice is theirs, many of them are leaving. And a lot of people want to bring, uh, blame it on the church. I have a different view I would say that children, by and large, have been distracted. (laughs) That God and church is a minor issue, not a major issue for them. They have learned over the years, perhaps watching their parents, perhaps watching their friends, obviously more than anything else, getting their cues and being discipled by the culture instead of Christ. Can I tell you this? They have found... That Jesus, at best, is secondary, not primary. And they have learned that, and now that they have the choice, they don't choose the best thing like Mary does. They choose to be distracted altogether. And that distraction is dangerous. It's damaging. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Because when we're distracted, here's what happens. The primary thing, in this case God, of course, gets gets neglected. And we say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Walker? Let me give you some examples. You know, it's possible tonight that you can be taking care of your house, but not building a home. Do you know there are more people who, who live like their house is primary and not what's going on in their family inside is primary? We can be living with our spouse, but not cultivating a marriage. You know that's possible? That you can really live with your spouse and you can know a lot of things about them, but they're not really primary. They're secondary at best. And you major on the minors and it's obvious by the arguments that you get into and the things that you disagree about and the things that are troubling in your house and get the most time and money. Christians can serve faithfully at church. Here's the kicker. 
but not really truly be serving the Lord at all. Martha was in the kitchen thinking that she was doing something with Christ, and then she gets mad at him. She completely lost her focus. You know, you can sing Christian songs, know all the words, and not even be worshiping. It's hard sometimes, isn't it, to distinguish between opportunities and distractions. Some of us don't know how to say no. We don't know to pull ourselves away. We don't know how to say, I'm not doing any of that right now. You know why? Because I'm missing out on what matters most. I'm not choosing what is essential. And when you live a life like that, and that's what you're doing every day, can I tell you, we can end up discouraged, exhausted, and even sometimes paralyzed in our spiritual walk by it. Jesus takes it incredibly serious, and he proves it by using what in grammar is called in verse 41 a double vocative. He says, Martha, Martha. And when Jesus or anyone in the Bible gets their name repeated or they repeat words two in a row, you know it's serious. In Luke, it has four of them. Jesus says in chapter 6 and verse 46, Lord, Lord, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? You call me rabbi? And you don't do what I do? You can't do that. 8.24 of Luke says, the disciples say, Master, Master, don't you care we're perishing in the storm? I mean, Jesus stands over in Luke 13.34, God's holy city, and he cries out right before he's crucified, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You just didn't know it was your day of visitation. One of his disciples get the last double vocative, and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. And and in this case, it's Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled. See what happens when you get distracted? It doesn't give you peace. You you think you're going to get all this stuff done. And if I could get this done and this done, and I put Jesus first. I mean, I put everything but Jesus. And we think, well, my kids, they just need an education. And if they could just be really excelling sports, and if I could get them into the right school, and and if I could just have this, and I could do, we think, and all it does is breed anxiety and trouble and crazy schedules, and you're working overtime, and you got to do this because you got bills now to cover all those things, and not be because any of them are wrong. They're just not the number one essential. We have taken secondary things in our lives, in our children's lives, and at times we have made them primary. Jesus says, oh, many things aren't the answer, Martha. There's one thing. See how he narrows it down? There's one thing that's necessary. A very serious text I'm reminded of in this very gospel, Jesus says, I, I want to tell you, this is what Jesus says how this can happen. How is it that you get so distracted that you neglect Jesus? How can, that, how can we make that choice? Luke 8:14 is smack dab in the middle of the parable that Jesus tells about the seeds. And the seeds in the parable represent the word of God. Jesus tells us that. And on the third one, verse 18 of chapter 4, he says, There is the seed that is cast into the thorny ground. And here's what it says. Because of cares, things that you think really, really matter. We would call them what you think, what Martha thinks was essential. Cares, concerns, anxieties. Riches, I have enough money to do all these things. Pleasures of life, oh, this is what will really do it for me. You know what happens when those things rule your life? Here's what Jesus says. It chokes the word. Imagine, it's like 
All these things that are non-essential, if you could picture it, it's like they've got both hands around your spiritual throat, and it's choking the life out of you. Oh, see, that's how serious it is to have non-essentials take the place of essentials. You're choking your kid's spiritual life and your own life out of them. If I've learned anything in COVID-19 lockdown, it's taught me how every day I need to fight more and more of clarifying in my life and in my family's life and the life of our church what is essential and non-essential. God following Jesus, church family and worshiping together. Man, we missed that. My family reaching lost souls with the gospel. Jesus says one thing is necessary. Here's the one thing. Mary has, listen, chosen it. And here's what Jesus calls it. And he's so good at this, putting things in context. I mean, he gives the woman living water at the well. Nicodemus, be born again. I mean, he's good at saying it right where what's going on. And here he says, she has chosen the good portion. You know what that, it's a meal term. It's, it's a food term. What is Martha doing? She's serving all this food. He, Martha, listen, you're making all this food, but you chose the wrong meal. <laughs> See, Jesus will say, here's essential. It's the, it's the meal Jesus serves to you, not the meal you serve to him that matters. You think it's serving me food? It's me serving you the real food that matters. And see Mary sitting at my feet? That's the choice she's made. You need to get out of the kitchen and sit down. You're missing the good meal. It's not that the other things aren't good. This is the best meal. This is the flame and yawn of the spiritual life. This is a meal, when Jesus serves it, it's going to last forever because it's the living bread. Maybe tonight as we close, the best thing you could do as this service is over is to get down on your knees or to get and have a family talk and say this, let's talk about, number one, what is really essential in our home and is it really essential to Jesus? And maybe we need to talk and pray through essentials and non-essentials in our family. And maybe during this COVID crisis, as you do that tonight, maybe this is time for some changes and say, you know what really needs to be number one? I'm going to get in a disciple group. I'm going to get in a small group. And I'm going to prioritize knowing what Jesus knows so I can do what he does. Because when I get to heaven, I want the master to be able to say, that I got it right. And everything else is going to be hinged on that. Being like him. Man, if we had that be true in every family at Faith Baptist Church, and every one of our teenagers, teenagers answered the question, you know what I want to be? I want to be like him. That's what I want to be. And whatever I got to do in life to get that done, that's what I'm going to do. Now, would it be, would it be, that we would learn the one essential thing is him. Let's close in prayer. Father, help us, because we live in a world that wants to distract us. Satan would love to distract us, and most of the time, it's not being distracted with all kinds of wrong, evil, horrible things. Most of the time, it's so much more beguiling and deceptive than that. It's good things. (laughs) Good things like hospitality. I mean, and and we do them often with Jesus in mind. Father, help us as your disciples to grow in this ability 
to very clearly understand the difference in your heart and mind between what is essential and non-essential in trying to follow you and be like you. Help us as parents. Help us as singles. Help us as teenagers. Help us as pastors. Father, help us to realize that that is part and parcel of what it means to be a disciple of you. And we'll thank you for that rich blessing, for it's in Jesus' wonderful name, our Master, we pray. Amen.